Hi, everybody. It is, uh, what time is it? It is 6 p.m. It is Thursday, the 18th of March, 2021. My name is Luke Thomas, and this is episode, I believe, 68 of the Luke Thomas live chat. Um, yeah, here we are. Wow, are we late? Usually it's at 3 o'clock East Coast time. Today was supposed to be at 5, and then I got stuck on traffic uh, around Fredericksburg, Virginia, driving today. I normally don't venture out of the city, but I had some things I had to do, and there was massive, massive construction and, uh, what do you want to call it, uh, accidents on uh, I-95 South, or North, I should say. Jesus Christ, it took forever to uh, get out of there. So, I'm a little late. Apologies, but better late than never. Today, we'll get to all of your questions. We'll look at them from the thread on the uh, community tab right here on youtube.com slash morning combat um without further ado let's get this party started shall we yes we shall okay let's do it all right there we are uh if you'd be so kind as to please thumbs up on the video hit subscribe join us please here in morning combat we appreciate everyone um who watches the show and watches the live chat all right i've been wasting everyone's time so I need to get this show on the road, do I not? Let's do that. All right. Fair number of questions today. All right, let me turn this off. Are you more impressed by how far ahead Amanda and Valentina, so I'm assuming you mean Amanda Nunes and Valentina Shevchenko, are of their competition, or is it more surprising that the competition is still so far behind? Um... Well, I'd say I'm more impressed by how far ahead they are. I mean, usually what you have in in, in any kind of weight class, um, there, you know, sometimes you can get parity where you had something like that at welterweight in the last few or since the departure of GSP, you had relative parity there. Light heavyweight used to be like that back in the day where you had some significant parity there. Um, but if you don't have parity, uh, then it's it's just a it's usually a situation of extremes either there is relative parity or you've got one figure kind of lording over the division in in that sense there's nothing unusual about amanda and valentina they merely are the latest versions of that for women's um straw feather well yeah straw bantam no excuse me fly bantam and uh, featherweight divisions uh, respectively so Yes, I mean, I can sing their praises uh, about Amanda Nunes' punching power, decision-making, well-roundedness. For Valentina, very good and underrated athleticism, good takedowns, good round management, accurate striking, all, all the things you want to mention. Those are, obviously, we, we, we've done that on this live chat a million times. We've talked about all of their various gifts and skills and what they bring to the table. But um, I don't really think this is some kind of moment to be like, wow, we, we should really reflect on how far women's MMA is in terms of being behind. Um, it is true that it's not on par with the men's game in most respects, although not entirely, but in, in most respects, it's not on par with the men's game. But the dynamic of two figures like that lording over their divisions, that seems to be true irrespective of gender. And yes, Amanda's obviously tremendous, and so is Valentina. Um, this is sort of a deeper question here. I'll circle back to it because it's just kind of heavy to start, but I will come back to it. I will come back to it um, in today's live chat, I promise. 
All right, do you think if the UFC adopted curved gloves of some kind, we would see more fighters employ a really quick jab with a relaxed fist as a rangefinder in a similar way to Tyson Fury, like, like you're trying to shake a booger off your hand? You might. They wouldn't have to focus on keeping their hands clenched, and they could just flick it out. It's true, but I mean, there's a lot of problems, right? One is you would part of the, part of the, re, the, the benefits of the gloves uh, being what they are is it allows you to grab. You would still want to grab a shoulder, grab a collar tie, um, grab the head and push it away or pull it. And so any of those situations is going to result in a potential eye poke. Certainly it enhances the risk. Um, and there's sort of other kind of tactile uses of the glove, both offensively and defensively, that the curved glove to me would definitely, um, or I should say this, the curved glove, curved glove, excuse me, would it would make a significant impact on a certain kind of way in which the fighters extend their hands, but I don't think it would curb the totality of the problem, although it doesn't necessarily have to. It doesn't have to solve all the problems. It just has to meaningfully solve enough of them or enough of the major kind of them to, to, for it to work. So um, would it change the way that fighters use their hands in some capacities? I guess it would depend on how much they're forced over. Um, I tend to think you'd probably still get some who wanted to, because I mean, part of the issue is they want them to go hand up palm facing the opponent, fingertips pointing to the sky, you can still do that in a curved glove. Your wrist will have the tape on it plus the Velcro, so that's going to be kind of hard, and the fingers are going to go over, but it's still somewhat doable, right? Although it actually kind of changes the equation. Maybe if they have curved gloves, they would stop this, and you could do that because now the fingers, instead of pointing this way, would be pointing down, and if they were this way, they'd be pointing this way, and that's bad. I guess we'd have to see, but um, it's a reasonable thing to conclude, I think, in some ways. But I don't, I, I don't, I don't know that it would meaningfully change fight tactics in terms of that kind of a thing. Uh, I just think it would maybe change the way some penalization is enforced. Obviously, change the way the hands face um, and reduce some of the raking or hand seeking that happens in certain circumstances. Um, but here's the thing about this. Nobody knows if that actually is true. Now, everyone talks about how the ones in Pride used to be that way and blah, blah, blah. But like we're in a different era of MMA. And I know that um, we've been over it a million times. Uh, Trevor Whitman believes that he has the kind of technology that has solved this problem. To my knowledge, uh, and I'm not saying that it's wrong. I'm just saying, to my knowledge, where has this been tested? I don't know, where, I don't know that it has been. Maybe it has. I mean, it certainly might have been. And I don't just mean in the gym. I mean, like, at scale... Uh, promotion is using it for all the various divisions, uh, women or men, you know, big or small, whatever, and then they've gathered this sort of data. I, I would like to see what that data shows. Does it make a meaningful impact? Does it change what kinds of things that fighters do in terms of range finding, grabbing? Um, to what extent does it alter attacks? I tend to think that's going to be relatively muted as a any kind of change, but I would, I don't know. I mean, people always ask questions in MMA. It's a fine question. Don't get me wrong. I'm not. I'm not bashing the question, but they're like, wouldn't this be better? And I'm like, some things I think don't necessarily need to be tested. Like, do we need to test what would happen if eye gouges were made legal? I, I tend to think that is, you lose one eye popping out of someone's socket. Um, that's bad enough. It doesn't, this is not something that necessarily has to like be scrutinized. We don't really know what would happen, and we have to kind of figure out what it, from an evidentiary standpoint what it might show. That That's not 
clearly that's not a, a, a useful you know, application of our time. But what about the idea that um, something that I think the effects are just people assume what they might be? You got to show your work. I talk, talk about this with anti-doping forces all the time. They 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 hide behind a series of understandable, but to me ultimately unsatisfying answers about what the ethics would be of testing some of this stuff. But on some level, it's like, <laughs> how do you really know that any of this is working, or what parts may be working really well, what parts might not be working that well? And it's just a lot of take our word for it. I'm not a take a word for it kind of guy. If there's something where you can apply a, a rule or a series of rules or implement some kind of catalyst for change, I want to know what the actual impacts of that change were. And they may be hugely significant, but at a bare minimum, we should know, we should have information upon which to make informed, quite literally, decisions. I tend to think we don't do enough of that, which is why what the Kansas Commission did in terms of open scoring, putting together at least some kind of data, some kind of testing, a lot more testing is needed because we don't have enough answers based on what we, what we have. But what we have is at least the beginning of some kind of answer, perhaps, it needs to be tested again, much more, about what some of the things may be true and actually be true when you apply open scoring. So um, they're all fine things to wonder about, but I tend to think whenever you introduce some kind of significant change, right, a, a changed curvature in the glove would affect every fight. Um, uh, the, the network effects of that are somewhat hard to anticipate. Some things you might be able to call, some things might happen that you wouldn't necessarily... Um, think to consider. Would you consider reviving your Luke Thomas channel for a slice of life vlogging content from Columbia? Well, if I go, um, or buy a drone. No, I put out a video yesterday for the first time in a while. I'm trying to be, I, I'm having a hard time articulating why I've not been uploading. Partly it's just got familial issues. I've been very busy with family Part of it is um, not again. I'm not burned out on MMA, but a little bit, a little bit over some of the uh, the less fun, savory parts of it. Not my job. My job's great, but about the industry itself, it kind of. I've had a moment of reflection about the industry and what my place in it may or may not be, and uh, it kind of sat me apart from it, in my at least in my mind. Um. And like on purpose, like wanting to be distinct from it. Um, and so I think I was just, you know, I would sit here sometimes and be like, okay, it's time to make a video. And I'd be like, you know what? I don't want to do it. Because uh, I wasn't in a headspace where, um, I don't know, it's hard to explain. It's hard, it's hard to explain. And then on Sundays, of course, you know, my family was being neglected. So I had to do something about that. But um, anyway. I think I've come to a different place. It's I, I'm not I'm not doing a good job articulating why I felt the way I felt because I haven't really taken the work to articulate it. But suffice to say, I don't feel like that today. So I'm hoping for for steadier content. Um, any chance we can get an occasional MK fight companion, a la Rogan and friends, but with Luke BC and a rotating special guests? Jay, we're not going to put Jay on that. Rashad Evans would love to. Yeah, we we have talked about doing some of these things. Uh, we're just waiting for the right moment. There's some issues about you know when you might do it and and why because um, you wouldn't want to do it on a fight you would have to cover otherwise because it, it actually ends up getting in the way a little bit. So we're trying to find the moment for that. The answer is we have definitely talked about things like this, but we just haven't quite worked out when and where. But Showtime is interested. They're interested. 
Great question. Has Francis Ngannou actually evolved since the first fight versus Stipe? Conversely, has Stipe declined by any margin since then? Eye injuries, age, the battles of DC. If so, has the gap closed enough to truly justify Francis as a minus 135 favorite? Um, there is absolutely positively no way to know. What you can bank on are what might be, you know, what you would consider to be reasonable inf- inferences. A reasonable inference might be that maybe Francis hasn't evolved to the degree that he and his camp says he has, or maybe he has, but let's say for a second that he hasn't, but he still has gotten better. And while not up to what he has portrayed, it won't necessarily matter for this particular consequence, or this particular bout, I should say, um, in terms of consequence, because um, some of the other things that he has worked on, in addition to... I think the the slow weathering of Stipe Miocic over time, not a significant amount, but sort of a cumulative in, in its own kind of way, uh, that is enough to tilt the balance of the scales, right? But in large part, this it's simply not knowable. It's just not knowable. And the reason why I say it's not knowable is not merely because the fights have ended so quickly, right? These with four knockouts and like the guys knocked out people in, you know, five nanoseconds or whatever it is. Just the most insane shit you ever heard in your life. But the the Rosenstruck fight, that one really kind of surprised me because um, not that he won and won spectacularly. Whenever, dude, any punch from Francis is, is you know, dim mock. So in that sense, no. But what I mean is, you know, even I know that he wasn't drilling that particular combo the way in which he responded. He kind of responded instinctually in the things that he and his team had planned. He kind of threw out the window. And if you go and watch closely, Rosenstrike was countering him in the pocket. Now, obviously, it wasn't enough in the end to matter. But there was a situation where you could have really cleanly applied, um, you know, shown in the laboratory and then brought it to bear in the actual moment. And it, instead, to me, it was just a bit of a reverting back to, you know, what comes natural to him. And maybe that was just nerves. Maybe that isn't, you know, how much can you read into that? Is all, eight, was it 18 seconds or something? You want to be careful about that too. I'm just saying, to me, I'm going to call it an unknown because his team are certain he has rounded the corner. I think he talks in a way where he feels like he's rounded the corner there's reason to believe that there's been enough corner rounding to really make a difference. But the idea that they've shown clear evidence of that at scale, it's not his fault that his power is what it is, but it prevents us from cleanly answering that question. I do think the one about Stipe is a little bit more answerable, which is I don't think he took some kind of beating, maybe in the second Cormier fight uh, through the early parts of it, but certainly I don't think he took a beating in the last one, although it was kind of tough and his face was definitely marked up and, and whatnot. But I do think that there's been a slow kind of hammering of him. Uh, the JDS fight, the, the the first JDS fight, he got absolutely, you know, he, he, I mean, he put it on, J, he is part of the reason JDS declined the way he did. But uh, also part of the inevitable decline that will meet Stipe if he sticks around long enough, and perhaps that will be this fight, perhaps it will not. You know, obviously, uh, JDS has contributed to that and some of the other things that have gone on in his career. So the question for me is not, you know, has he has he truly gone, uh, turned into a butterfly kind of situation? I don't know. 
But between the age and the uh, uh, you know, understandable, not substantial, but you know, perhaps incremental uh, uh, age decline of someone like Stipe, with Francis just having stupid power and perhaps some improved tactics or more, is that enough to tilt the balance? I tend to think that it might be. Will we see it? I have no fucking idea. I have no clue about that. Would you and BC ever consider doing a resume review type video on old fights? For example, you could talk through the Four Kings era of boxing to build to big matchups like Fedor versus Krokop, GSP versus Penn, or Liddell Rampage 2. Yeah, we definitely want to do stuff like this. For sure. People responded to that content. I think we got another one coming, by the way, pretty soon. Um, so, yeah, we would absolutely do something like that. Mm -hmm. For sure. Uh, you recently mentioned that you have obtained a medical marijuana card. That's true. What kind of weed have you been smoking? I don't smoke it. Edibles. Gummies in particular. That's what your boy needs for good sleep. <laughs> uh, they have one here. I think it's called like District Dispensary, something like that. Anyway, they make them. Have you considered reaching out to Derek from More Plates, More Dates, uh, which is a YouTube channel? And do an in-depth interview about the current state of USADA in the UFC. Yes, I have thought about it. I probably will do it eventually. But uh, I'm still looking for a little bit more information before I really make that reach. But yes, it's on, it's on my radar. Uh, Gaethje and Chandler have become contenders in the lightweight division. And they'll, they will be headlining a big card soon. Has there ever been a fight this big in the UFC where both fighters developed in a promotion that was direct competitor to the UFC as the local regional promotions are not competitors and are more like partners to the UFC? Yeah, I mean, back in the old days, you saw a fair bit of this um, when they came over from Pride and they had some kind of Pride rivalry, you know, where it was maybe like Brazilian top team versus shoot to box or something. There might have been a little bit of that. Um you certainly saw it in the days when guys were going back and forth between Icon Sport, Rumble on the Rock, PFL, not PFL, I'm sorry, IFL, um, Elite XC. You, you did see, I mean, a lot of that bleed over um, like this. So in that, it's, it's, it feels novel given that you just don't see that kind of exchange of talent anymore. But it happened all the time. Or, you know, and vice versa. Things would be built up in the UFC or a fighter would get a big name. Like when BJ beat Matt Hughes... And then he went and fought in what, K1 after that, K1 Heroes? You know, he took all of that juice and then uh, went to another place uh, to apply to, uh, you know, to, to exact uh, his craft in any case. And um, yeah, it's just rarer these days. It's just rarer these days. Plus, the UFC likes to usually be the author of their own moments. They'll capitalize on one if it's a, if it's a layup. Uh, this is. This is pretty layup-ish, which, I, which, I, which is to say, like, it's hard to make a bad fight at the top of lightweight. I mean, it's just, it's a lot, I mean, this is a great permutation, but there's a lot of different great permutations you could have. So, yes, I mean, there's a, this, used to this used to happen relatively frequently in either direction. It's just rare now. What is the significance of getting 100K subs and possibly more for the channel? Does YouTube give you more money if you have over 100, 200, 300 how many views does a video get need to get? Excuse me for it to be worthwhile putting effort into making it. When is the super chat coming back? Super chat, I'm not so sure, but I run that up the flagpole to get that done to charity. I've not, 
I don't know where it is, where we stand on that. But uh, to answer the question, it's not like at 100 that's some kind of magical moment where all of a sudden the ad rates bump up. UFC, oh, sorry, UFC, Jesus. YouTube will give you a big plaque. I've got it in mine somewhere. I don't know where it is. But I've got a plaque. Um, you know, when you do it, you got to get a plaque at a million, you get a plaque at 10 million. These are, these are you know, important, but it's somewhat, obviously, arbitrary uh, moments. What's really the difference between 99,000 and 105,000? Nothing, really. These are, these are largely equivalent channels. But it's just a nice way to sort of, uh, I think, draw distinctions and note achievement. It's an easy number to understand, and in that sense. Um, you know, plus, so people understand it's a threshold that is considered at 100,000. I don't know if it's, like, super special, but it's, you know, it's something of an achievement. Um, the million one is obviously the one that's the real differentiator, and then 10 million is for the ultra, 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 ultra elite. But... Um, so no, in that sense, you don't get more money that way. Really, this is all done algorithmically in these actually algorithmically algorithmic uh, bed, uh, um, bidding sessions that are done by these essentially these you know uh, computer programs that um, that YouTube has set up. There's no one rate, even between two. So there's no it can go it can run the gamut. So for example, um, if you look at some of the ad rates, maybe for um, like travel vlogs or people involved in the travel and leisure industry, they tend to have really high ad rates based on who is actually, you know, paying for the ads. And these are companies that tend to have, you know, a lot of money, which could be airlines, it could be hotels, it could be somewhere else in that chain of vacationing. They have significantly high ad rates in general. Even that will vary, but that's a sort of a general proposition. You are probably going to make more money. Let's say you had 100,000 subs on a travel channel. You had 100,000 subs on an MMA channel. You're just going to make more probably with the travel channel by virtue of all the things that I've mentioned. Again, there will be variance. Beyond that, what you're looking for is just, um, again, some of this is out of your control. But, you know, based on what kind of audience you're generating, what percentage of it is broken down by gender, how long do they stay there, how did they find you, this kind of goes into this sort of algorithmic bidding process that ends up resulting in money. For me, I mean, you know, I don't go and think of it like how much does each one make it worth. I don't like do these transactionally. I sort of think of it more in the, in the end, like how much money are we trying to generate? Okay, based on what I know about what these kinds of videos generate, how many of them do I need to do? Um, or, you know, what's a decent kind of framework for getting to that position? You know, not so much maximizing video content uh, in terms of numbers of videos, but the video content itself. The post-fight shows are the most lucrative, usually by far. Sometimes this one can actually generate um, decent ad rev. Uh, you can get some that have like 30, 40K in terms of viewership, and they'll be you know, on par sometimes with 100K, but once in terms of the, the video itself, but once you start getting into the hundreds of thousands, that's when the ad rates usually return, you know, several hundred dollars or more. Um, I think the most I've ever made on a single video, on a single video was probably 1500 bucks. Um, and that was one I did, I think that was my post-fight show for Mayweather McGregor. That one did a lot, and I've had I've had a few of them clear the thousand. Um, but in general, what I'm looking for is, you know, I like it when in my personal channel when I'm actively uploading, which I realize has not been happening recently. But when it does, I like it when it's around. You know, I'm looking for a couple hundred bucks or more for the standard kind of upload. Um, if I'm doing a big, important, timely, which again, have not been, but let's say I'm doing that. 
um, video for a breakdown of a major UFC star, a Connor or an Izzy or whatever, and I put those up on a Sunday, those should do really well. Those should do deep into the hundreds, uh, if not, you know, six, seven, eight or more sometimes, depending on, you know, again, it, it, it really, it can run the gamut a lot. There's no real hard, uh, lines on this whole thing. Um, but that's sort of what you're looking for. Can you record you and BC's reactions to big fights like you did for Connor and Dustin more often? Enjoyed seeing you break character and have a relatable fangirl moment. Well, fangirl for the moment. But um, now, I mean, let's keep those rare. <laughs> when will my dad return from getting those cigarettes? It's been three years now. I, I don't, don't think dad's coming. That is funny. Uh, let's see here. Okay. With regards to fight cards, is this year proving to be one of the best so far when considering how many stacked cards we are getting just before May alone? Yeah, so far it's been strong. It's been really strong. Um, what are we, still in first quarter, January, February, March? So we're still in first quarter. Let's... Let's see how the rest of the year goes. I agree. Things are looking... The, the, out, the forecast is strong, but we are still in nascent stages of this year. Hi, Luke. Do you think a reporter has a right to not discuss stories of people they know closely or related to, even though it's their job? For example... Chris Cuomo stated he would not talk about his brother, Andrew Cuomo, due to their relationship. Well, he had no problems talking to and about him when things were going well. His, his issue was that he decided after things were not going well that it did not bear. Um, you know, he, he was not then subject to the responsibilities of talking to his brother, which, yes, that's, he's right on the back end, but you were wrong on the front end. You should have not done that to begin with, and they were happy to milk it for ratings and then you know, turns out he's groping, allegedly, women left and right and doing more than that. And uh, besides, you know, old people getting killed. And um, all of a sudden that, you know, there's not that. But yes, yeah, certainly you can recuse yourself from situations like this if you are unable to. And you, in most cases, a, a good uh, editor won't allow you to do it. Yeah, it's very common. In the 90s, my dad made me watch 80s boxing VHSs to prove 90s boxing was inferior to 80s boxing. That's how I was introduced to Hagler. What are your first memories of Hagler? That's a great question. First memories. Uh, I kind of became more obsessed with him later in life than I was early. I definitely watched, I definitely watched uh, the Leonard fight. That was big. But honestly, I didn't really get into what he was doing and why he was important until my 20s. So I don't have this like romantic, uh, you know, moment in my life that, you know, everything descended from. It was, I had a different scenario at the time. Luke, would you ever consider training to be a referee in combat sports? I can see, uh, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I thought about it at times. I got invited to do a referee and judging um, gig. 
in Virginia, but I just don't have the weekend. I mean, I, I, who could have the weekend? I, I could go to a course, yes. I certainly, I certainly could go to a training uh, event. Uh, that, that is not an issue, but everything else, I, I just don't have the time for, you know. Any chance you could do a studio tour? Yeah, I've been meaning to do one, and the reason why I haven't is sort of twofold. One, I need to get set up on this particular wall uh, a uh, charging station. And I know how to make one. I've just not done it yet. And the other thing I realized was this this room is all wrong. It's all wrong. I've got my desk basically in the middle of the room. And then I'm like halfway to this wall and then I'm halfway to this wall. From this from this lens to that wall is maybe six or seven feet. It's not a huge room. It's a small room. So, something like that. Maybe eight feet. Uh, and... So in, I, I ultimately have my desk sitting in the goddamn middle of the room. If you go and look at what most studio tours have, they have it up against a wall, which really protects them for things like cable management and, and you know, simplicity's sake. Um, I need to figure out how to rearrange the, uh, the, the office first to get that kind of a look. I don't know what I'm going to do to do that. So between those two issues, uh, I have not done one yet, but I need to because I'm pretty close. I've got, I've got basically every piece of equipment that I need and... Have made use of at this point, but I've 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 done a poor job of arranging them. Luke, when you went on Rogan, was there any discussion beforehand about topics to cover? No, I remember you saying you for sure wanted to get into PEDs and the precarious position in which fighters find themselves in. Blah 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 blah. Did you and Joe outline the convo in advance? No, there was no discussion about it whatsoever. Not one word ahead of time, which is you know how it should be, right? That's how it's exactly how you just, I mean, there could be certain circumstances where outlining it could serve a professional purpose, but generally speaking, this is fine. You often dismiss fiction when you're talking about these kinds of literature. I don't dismiss it, uh, that you are consuming. When you say that for you, you don't have time for them. The subtext is always that you think they are only for leisure and wouldn't offer material for personal growth and learning. I don't mean that. To, I don't mean that. I mean that in terms of my personal priorities, I don't have time. I don't have time for them. At least I don't perceive to be having time for them. Uh, do you not feel incomplete when you cannot follow some intellectual discourse when they mention some big classic from fictional literature? Let's say Camus, Orwell, Kafka, Dostoevsky, and Vonnegut. Well, I've read all of them. Not all of their works, but I'm, you know... I've read at least one work from all of them. You mentioned Dr. Carl Hart's book as an important for changing a person's perspective on how they view drug use and drug users. Is it not conceivable for you that even fiction or poetry can let you generate new insights? Yes, of course it is. I'm just not good about using those things to foster insights. Look, can you give us more clarity on what happened with Jay? You've said he's off the show, but he might come back eventually. What will determine this? I don't know. If we feel like it's a good fit, uh... Yeah, Jay just is still with the company. He just got pulled off the show, and he's going to work on other shows with the company. Just got He's not on this one. That's it. Everyone's like, oh, y'all are talking bad about this dude. His job is not in peril. Trust me. The dudes who run the company have seen the documentary. They, they, saw, they saw it well in advance. They know what they're getting. I mean, all of this was like, you know, and there's no secrets here. There's no, like, public campaigns. It's a lot of pro wrestling, what you're looking at, which is why I don't like being involved in it. It is good. They did a good job making it, but it's just not, it's not my steez. Dream coach interviews for this year. Behrman, Whitman, Mike Brown, got to be coaches you'd be interested in interviewing. No. 
It has to be coaches interviewed and talking. Big difference. There's many people in the industry I'm actually interviewed in, or I'm interested rather in interviewing. And then when we actually get to the part where they have to be interviewed, they don't wish to say anything of note or interest. Not interested in that. For example, Trevor Whitman is a very interesting man, but if he doesn't want to share things in a conversation, which of course is his right, but if he doesn't, it's not going to make for the world's best interview. Uh, oh, look, it's on you to get him out of it. It can be to an extent. That's true. Uh, but mostly what it's about is do they want to participate in this exchange or not? And some of them might. Usman only seems to take down guys he feels have no submission or wrestling threat. With that being said, how does Masvidal make Usman respect his grappling? Should he attack from the bottom and allow takedowns to occur without trying to defend them? I think you got to defend them a little bit. But from there, it's it's less about... Um, you have to understand... BJJ Scout put on... He did such a good job with this. He put out a huge video. Not a huge, actually a pretty small one, but an important one on the particular kinds of the, the sort of decision tree that Kamara Usman has for these moments uh, and in those particular situations along the fence line. He actually he's put together like a whole thing, like if he does X, he goes through with this, and then if they do Y, he goes this, and then it's this whole tree of decision-making. And, you know, it doesn't matter what choice they make. The whole thing is kind of mapped out to an extent anyway in advance. That's that's sort of the idea that you can go and look at what he's what he's doing there um, you would have to disrupt that. That's the chain you have to disrupt. Now, could you do that by actually fighting them off, potentially? Could you do that by creating separation? Obviously, you probably could. How easy for, is it for you to create separation? Could you create separation vis-a-vis -vis your guard? What are, the me what are the mechanisms to disrupt that meta that he has that makes that whole decision tree possible? That's what you have to undo. What was your relationship to guns like before you entered the military? How did it change over the years? Um, do you own a gun now? I do not. Do you enjoy shooting for sport or as toys? To an extent, it's fine. I, I, I like it. I don't love it. Like some, some people are like, oh, fucking air, I get to go shooting. And it's awesome. Instagram is filled with it. I don't really look at it like that, but it is fun. I do enjoy it. Uh, obviously, you know, if it's if you're in the right circumstance, just, you know, shooting someone's, you know, 410 on the back of their, you know, I don't know, truck, and you're shooting beer cans. I, you can miss me with that. But um, let's see. I had hunted for a few years, um, deer, uh, dove. Um, what else have we hunted? Uh, turkey, but that went quite poorly. Um, so, you know, I've used, you know, 243s, 410s, 22s. Um, all the kinds of sort of learner models that you might have, uh, all the 243 is a little more than that, but, um, and then, you know, uh, I, 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 I've, I've, I'll say this, I've run the gamut from sort of, uh, intro to guns, guns, intermediate use gun level, um, you know, different kinds of, uh, action on the rifles, different kinds of rounds, you know, buckshot or spray or you know, whatever. And then the military, obviously, it has a very specific kind. I had the M16A2 service rifle, right? Um, how did it change over the years? It didn't really change by use in the military at all. It more changed as a function of, like, policy preferences and what, you know, what you're trying to use policy to solve for. 
So I didn't, I didn't, the only thing I always found, not even weird, but like, um, it's not for me, man. I fired, I fired, I fired a Mark 19 grenade launcher. This is the one where it's a belt fed grenades and you're sitting on your rear end. You have your feet in the like stirrups basically, and you have a butterfly trigger and it's got two handles here. Almost like you're doing like, you know, rows, um, and you have the butterfly trigger. Man, you fire a uh, a Mark 19, you know, grenade launcher with a belt fed. And you just dug, 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 as the grenades come through. You start doing that, dude. I'm telling you, man. Like, y'all can keep your rain. It doesn't. It doesn't have to say after the, that. Was one of those moments where it's like, this is such a good experience, and this is so fun that nothing else is ever going to come close. So when I go to the range, which is very infrequently, but to the extent that I do. I really try to play with like um, the kinds of rifles or weapons that you ordinarily would not have access to on the street or have some kind of unique, you know, uh, form factor or something like that. Some kind of German weapon that is, you know, otherwise unusable. That's what I'm looking for. Excitement level for a potential TJ versus Jan fight. Well, as a fight itself, it's it re- one one could reason that it could be quite good uh, as a as a next step in the Bantamweight division, yeah, I don't like it at all. Uh, I mean, I've got the most lax and, you know, uh, counterintuitive views on anti uh, and doping in, in all of sports media, perhaps. And even I think, dude, the rules are what the rules are. They're stupid, but they are, they are what they are. And you broke them to give him a title shot. I mean, I, yes, I understand no one took the title from him at Bantamweight in terms of an actual fighter in an actual bout. And so that leaves some things unresolved, but that is what the situation is. And you don't have to accommodate TJ to change that. However, I do think that because no one took it off of him, that he should be considered, uh, knocking on the door. He needs a number one contender fight. I'm perfectly okay with that. But you know, if they end up making TJ versus Jan, I'm not going to sit here and say it's a shitty fight. No, it's a great fight. It's a great fight. I can't wait to see exactly what TJ looks like, what he's been working on, what he's not been working on, what the narrative. I mean, we've never, you know, have we had in the modern in the modern era? I'm not talking about Tim Sylvia or Barnett or anything like that. I'm talking about the modern era. Have we had a a oh, what am I saying? John Jones has had a million things. I was going to say have we had a have we had a situation like this? where he had a long suspension and came back and we didn't know how he was going to perform. But TJ also wasn't as special as John Jones was before John had his issues anyway. So there's some differences there too. But I, I, I listen, I, who the fuck knows how he's going to look? I have no clue. Are you in the training room? Because I'm not in the training room. I have no idea how he's going to look. I just know giving him the fight right away, eh, it seems off. Did you see the BT Sports promo on Leon Edwards prior to the last weekend's fight? If so, what would you think? I have not. I saw the original one that they made that I told, speaking of Rogan about, but I've not, I've not seen that one. Highest percentage submission when you were training BJJ had to be Kimura, had to be Kimura, um, because I could get it from half guard, cross body, no sweat. Um, I used it for reversals. I used the Kimura grip. I used it for all, all you know, uh, takedowns. I used it for all kinds of stuff. What's the most inspiring and motivating MMA performance you've you've ever seen? You know, obviously the, some of the, the, the comeback by Darren Elkins more recently has been great. I'll give I'll give credit where credit is due. 
I think uh, Yoani and Jacek in that fight with you know, Zhang Wiley or it was incredible. Um, Adesanya in the fifth round. That was a big boy moment against Kelvin Gastelum. That was a huge one. Um, Anderson Silva having the wherewithal to throw up that triangle in the fifth. That was on, on Chael Sonnen, that was a big one. That was a huge one. Um, would have been some really like you know impressive ones. My favorite photo is the one of Tony Frickland going insane and like he's like oh, you know he's got this like whacked out face and he's got blood coming down. That's about he had actually lost or he had it had been stopped due to cuts so he had lost it in that way and he was actually yelling out of frustration. But that when you look at just look at the photo, you don't actually get that sense. Like if you didn't know the context, you'd look at the photo and you'd be like, "Wow, man! Like that's a real, that's a real moment of like rage and uh, perhaps like celebrated aggression." You know, like when they win, they're like, "Ha ah, ha!" kind of thing. Um, obviously, uh, Randy Couture coming back and beating Tim Sylvia was fucking huge. That was super huge. Forrest Griffin beating Rampage Jackson was big. For that reason. Um, Rashad knocking out Chuck Liddell was big. I mean, you could, the list is endless. We've seen the, uh, with the elite strong, excuse me, we've seen with the elite of strongmen, the likes of Thor and Eddie Hall and the record breaking deadlifts that the maximum weight a human can achieve when trying to put on as much functional muscle as possible is 460 pounds. Sort of, not quite. Um, that being said, if you were to create the best fighter at the limit of human potential, assuming as uh, well as they were fully trained, how much would they weigh? Not le- you want more like Michael Phelps than you want, you know, Eddie Hall. You want him long, long, lanky, athletic, sick motor, uh, capacity for work, capacity for volume, and you know, willing to take a shot. I mean, I don't know if Michael Phelps is willing to take a shot as much as you know Eddie Hall might be. Uh, and Eddie Hall is obviously you know a special athlete, but if I'm thinking about like what's good for fighting, I always think you want someone who's a little bit more like a swimmer than you want anything else. And of course, Eddie Hall used to be a swimmer back in the day, but I mean like you know that kind of a bot. Ryan Lochte is more going to be helpful for you than you know uh, Thor is. So I was asking, who is the toughest opponent for Colby of the three, which includes Edwards, Wonderboy, or Burns? I would imagine it would be Wonderboy. Now, um, it's either Wonderboy or Edwards. I tend to think Colby would. I tend to think Colby would do well otherwise, simply by virtue of volume and uh, not stall positions, but working positions, and just kind of drain a guy like Gilbert over and over again. Um, Edwards, I think, looked really sharp, but we just don't exactly know how good he is. This, or at least what the very best version of him looks like, because you know, you guys know. And then Wonder Boy to me is, you know, he's he's going to be feast or famine. I tend, to, you know, what maybe I rethink that. I would say, who's the toughest opponent for Colby of the three? You know, maybe the Burns fight would be more competitive on the feet, which would limit Colby's ability to do work there. And then obviously with the ground, he had to be ultra careful. There is that. Um, 
They're all tough. Who is the one that I could eliminate as like the not necessarily the toughest? I'm saying Edwards, but I don't know that that's true. That's a great question. Shit. Who is the toughest fight for Colby of the three? Because you can see a situation where all three, you know, Wonderboy and Burns are the most dramatic in terms of their precise skill sets where they have the most, you know, advantage over the rest of those divisions. And in this case, Colby too. You know, you got the, the jiu-jitsu with uh, Burns. Obviously, he's got more than that, but you got that. And then with Wonderboy, that sort of odd striking style that he has, plus some of the other stuff, obviously, you can do as well. But those are the two, the ones that kind of stand out, I guess, now, now that I think about it, for, for those reasons. So maybe those are the two toughest? That's, that's a great question. Which of these will happen first in the UFC? An eye pops out, paralysis, death from a pile driver, or a compound fracture? So a compound fracture, if memory serves, that is when it, the bone not only breaks, but then breaks through the skin. For sure, you're going to have a compound fracture. Has DC lost any credibility? Are we talking about the, uh, Daniel Cormier? In his commentating, he has become quite the company shell, this person writes. And it shows through very transparently. Well, um, credibility, I, I don't know if he's lost credibility. I, I No. Like, when you say that, what does that mean? Like, his championship status is now more in question or his knowledge of the fight game is or something? Like, dude, the promotion runs every part of that show, including the commentary. You're going to get, for the most part, Virtually every case, you're going to get promotion-approved commentary. UFC-approved commentary is not going to be the most precise or honest commentary you can get. So if you feel like someone's playing favorites or ignoring certain things, in a lot of cases, you know, it's not his fault that he has teammates, but or, you know, people he has had as teammates, and people that he was rivals with who are actively engaged in still in their fight careers, that creates some complicating factors you know, as well. So this is true really of any, any of these guys. Um, I think in many cases, they're just doing their best. I think a lot of them do as good of a job as you can ask, but it's UFC approved commentary. It's just always going to be something missing from that. Um, whenever you, whenever that happens, that's going to be the same, you know, for any promotion, Bellator too, because it's run by them. I think, I don't know if Showtime has say over the commentators or not. I'm imagining not imagining Bellator does. And so for those reasons, you're getting Bellator approved commentary. That's there's going to be something missing from that. So um, in that sense, I don't know that he's lost credibility. What I think has turned some people off is, if and I'm guessing, is one, that the commentary, and again, for some people they're going to like this, and for some people they're not, but it sounds a little bit more like Fight Companion-y than kind of technically breaking it down like Brian Stan might have. So I think some people that, that does not appeal to, and again, there's going to be, you know, uh, your, your mileage on that is going to vary. And then quite the company shill, and it shows through very transparently. He certainly has, and including on social media, argued on behalf of the UFC in ways that I don't think were, they were not dishonest. And I would never suggest that they were dishonest uh, in the sense that he was sharing like, you know, personal experiences or reasons to, you know, uh, not merely like what UFC did to him, but how he grew in the process. And so I don't think he's in any way not telling the truth there, but that story is by definition anecdotal and doesn't really capture the fuller reality, which I'm sure he is at least nominally aware of, but probably a lot more than that, which is, you know, oh, look, I've got paid great. You got paid, you know, all y'all got paid 
you know, if you were lucky. It, it all, remember all those things that were happening at one point when it was like people were complaining about Christmas bonuses or something, and then a couple of fighters put out like, oh, when, I remember one Christmas, UFC sent me a bunch of money, which is a real thing, man. If you're a, you know, a parent or a husband or you know, significant other and you can't provide for your family, it must be you know, a very difficult moment for, for you personally. And so to the extent that the UFC provided relief for that, I can imagine being a very formative experience, but the reality is what the reality is. Y'all are underpaid. And that's just the, that's the, the, the I said this on before. I said it on this. The, the, the debate is over. It's, there's, no, there's no debate anymore. The debate, there's, there's not a debate. The only debate is, is anything going to be done about it? Right? And what should be done about it? And that, to me, is a very robust debate. I don't know that the Alley Act is really the best idea for MMA, not as it's currently constructed in boxing. I wouldn't want what boxing has at all. Uh, but at the same time, what do you owe the fighters? What if that's not really the predominant conclusion? So you can have a debate about what to do about it. But like what it is, <laughs> they're underpaid. Our argument over. There's not an argument anymore. It is what it is. And so if you see people trying to argue in any capacity that they're handsomely rewarded in UFC, individuals might be, individual paychecks could be, there could be ways where, you know, aggregately it's a you know, million dollars, for example, is a lot of money, but it's not much if you were owed 10, right? So, um, but again, if you have an, any gig you have with them, if you want to keep it, it's got to be, approved through them if you work for the promotion that's just what it is you know so is he saying things that are defending the company's pay structure yeah yeah he is have you seen the latest news from the uk and the government's reaction to the new bellator contract with bbc no i have not uh the uk government has called on the bbc to justify its broadcast management arrangement uh, broadcast arrangement, excuse me, with MMA promotion Bellator amid the current debate and about the lasting effects concussion can have on sportsmen and women's health. And a bunch of people are being called to testify at various hearings. That's interesting. I'll have, I honestly, if that's the first I'm hearing about it, I had no clue. I will uh, absolutely look into it. Look how real are fighters being when they say they will die in the octagon. Uh, I do believe most of them, yes. And where does that sort of mental toughness come from? It's, it is mental toughness, but mental toughness is usually about a matter of you know, long-term endurance. Obviously, it can be for, more, you know, for different applications than that, but I tend to think when you're using that term, it's about things like you know, making weight over the course of a week, dieting, going to training, whatever you're, all the things that require you to do them consistently. Rather, what I think of when I think about fighters who say that is, yes, they're tough and they're mentally tough, but more it's um, it's a function of risk management and what are what and how that risk management is informed by what things are important for them. What are your goals? What are what do you want to achieve? Under what conditions do you want to achieve them? What is acceptable? What is not acceptable? And they just make a calculation that for the reasons that they may articulate, honor, blah 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 their risk assessment tells them that that's something that they should allow. Uh, I would consider that a pretty fucking warped risk assessment, but I understand that like, I don't fight for a living and they do. And maybe we shouldn't like say that that's necessarily a good thing, but that it's just inevitable. Someone's going to have an idea like that if they're doing this occupation 
for a living. Not in every case, but in a lot of cases, which is why you hear it um, you know, pretty frequently. If the U excuse me, if the UFC started doing weigh-ins on fight day, how do you think it would affect weight cutting? Uh, it would make it fucking. It would make a disaster. It'd be super fucking dumb to do that. Keep doing boxing. I've enjoyed getting into a new sport. Yeah, well, it's not necessarily new, but I'm glad to do it. And uh, I know some of the people don't like it, but we like it. Like the NBA, China has had a huge impact on what can be said and even done in the league. Do you think the Chinese market will interfere with the UFC in the future? Yeah, no doubt about it. This has happened to everyone. We all thought we would go there and bring open markets and that would undo authoritarian forms of government. And it's actually quite the opposite. It's that the authoritarian forms of government have co-opted the free markets as a, a way to... Um, grow and aggregate the power of the state and to use it for the early intended effects. Uh, it doesn't work at all. And it's not just the China leaning on the NBA, any kind of foreign company doing business over there, they're, they have found unique ways to lean on and make concessions of Apple. They've done this with, um, you know, the, the list is certainly goes HSBC. They've done I mean, it goes on and on. Obviously HSBC is a little bit different. Um, given where it's, you know, given the name, but um, they have a significant Western presence, you know, as part of their business. And so I just mean, you know, in that sense, any any business coming or going from there that has a lot of Western, uh, you know, these Hollywood studios going through and getting, having Chinese ownership, there's all kinds of demands and bows that go through with it. Anybody who wants to do business there, they're going to they're gonna make you kiss the ring. Some more than others. Some you may not really even ever feel, you may not notice too much, but to the extent, that, again, right? You want to do business in China, you have to do a business that they approve of. Well, if they don't approve of it, you're not going to do it, period. Uh, and if they care enough anyway. So, so far, to my knowledge, I don't know what that would be for UFC. I don't know where they would get sideways or what they'd be looking for, but rest assured, if the UFC would like to, and for really any business, and this is really complicated because obviously China is a critical component in the global supply chain for any number of things. Uh, it's hard to pull yourself out of that supply chain to make, as a consumer, for example, you know, ethical consumer decisions. It makes it quite difficult. But it's, that's not the same thing about going into business there. The trade-off that they're making is the ethical trade-offs that they'll have to make are, they think, and they, they assess as pretty small. Uh, the consequence for them, if you get them right, will be limited. And the upside is the customer base. Um... What do you think about the idea of there being a media darling fighter? And do you believe it has repercussions, positive and negative, for fighters to be labeled as that either by promotion or by fans? I don't know to what extent the labeling is done. I mean, obviously there are some, but I don't know that it's that big and pronounced. But do I think that there are fighters that the media gets enamored with and overblows time to time? Or, or quite the opposite, that just misses and doesn't pay attention to them the way that they should? 
and that I have done this in either direction? Yes, of course. It's, it's, um, it's a very real thing. I don't know what the solution is because you're the only people wanting this job are people who are fans and then convert themselves for the most part into media. It, it seems inevitable that you're going to get this kind of um, dynamic. How do you think uh, Fury versus Josh was going to go? I think Fury is going to fuck him up. I, it, it may be a little bit more cautious than I'm giving credit because obviously uh, Joshua packs a, a huge punch and can be patient. And when he's locked in, you know, we've seen how he can get on his bike and not really put himself in bad positions if he doesn't have to. And so for the reasons you might see equally, like like the Klitschko versus Fury fight is not good. Like it's, uh, he wins, but it's not like it's not like a really interesting affair. It's just kind of what it is. And um, it could be like that, but I tend to think eventually Fury's going to get break through his defenses and, and absolutely overwhelm him. In their prime, what fight would you rather watch? GSP Silva or Silver Jones? Uh, GSP Silva. That was the one to make. Do you think the built-in storyline regarding Masvidal's higher chance of success against Usman with a full training camp is that convincing? Um, it's the only one you could really use. I understand it's especially appealing to casual fans, right? Or hardcore Masvidal fans, true. But for relatively unbiased hardcores, I don't see it meaning much. Oops, excuse me, wrong one. Here we go. I wonder if his skill set is essentially already too set to make a significant difference on the outcome of this fight. Um, in general, yes. In general, yes. I tend to think that the first fight and the second fight will probably look relatively similar. You have to ask yourself, what would Masvidal do differently? People say, oh, he didn't have a good training camp. Okay, so let's imagine that he does. What would go differently? What would show me in, this, in a fight? It's hard to show you, but tell me, rather, what you believe would be significantly different. And there are ways to imagine um, you know, a uh, more consistent effort with the guard, creating scrambles, getting to his feet. But in general, what is there that would lead you to believe that uh, he could consistently keep Kamaru off of him? And when I say Kamaru off of him, I mean Kamaru pressing into him on top and on the ground. And I'm not like doing huge damage, maybe doing huge damage, but I'm not even, forget that, just maybe doing enough to get a little bit of damage in here, a lot of control, and just winning that way. What would you see in there that would make you believe that? And especially if you look at the totality of his career and it led to that point. Uh, it, it's certainly achievable. Uh, you, it, you'd be very foolish to count out Jorge Masvidal, but to me, like the idea that there's a there's a lot of like it's a really compelling argument. I I don't believe that. In your opinion, what MMA fighters have the best trash talk during interviews to have a fight, whether it's a work or a shoot? I, I'm the wrong motherfucker to ask. And don't get me wrong, on occasion, you know, I like a little trash talk too. It's a little fun. But like day to day, you could, it's, it's, you know, it's fun to watch a car crash, I guess. But I don't, yeah, it's not what I'm looking for. Uh, what do you think is the reason that boxers hit their peak at an earlier age in MMA fighters? 32 in boxing years is ancient. It's a little on the strong side. I actually say 32 is still pretty primish. Whereas in MMA, it's smack in the middle of their peak. That's also true. 
Um, partly, I think it's a selection of athletes. They're not as good as boxing's overall. Remember, boxing draws all over the world in a huge amount of um, weight classes and countries across religions and, and continents. And yes, MMA has really made massive growth in terms of the expansive reach, but not to the level that bo- I mean, boxing has obviously a bit of a head start. So it's going to have more in that sense. I also think the best practices are much more well-defined. So there's a ceiling on how much you can really innovate. There is some to that, but not a whole lot. Um, I also tend to think that the, the way in which boxing is, that it doesn't have too much chaos in it. Right? It's a, you know, if, you see, if you see someone losing the first six rounds, there are, comebacks happen, but chances are they're going to lose the, the next six as well. And so if they get into a bad spot in the eighth, you can just call it, right? Um, so I think those tend to be the biggest reasons. There might be some other ones, whereas some of the other factors that go into MMA, grappling, wrestling, the distance in which you spend apart, that they may confer benefits for fighters who age. Not that they get better as they age, but they don't detract as much while they age, and they can remain just as competitive and sometimes peak late in their 30s, which we've seen now at heavyweight and light heavyweight. It's a great question. Those are those tend to be some of the things that I think about most when I try to answer that question. Those are the things I look at, but... To be clear, uh, there's probably a ton of answers to that effect. Uh, let me do see if I can do one or two more. Uh, given the recent rise of anti-Asian sentiment in America, how do you think fans in attendance at 261 will react to the return of Chinese champion Zhang Weili? Uh, do you think the UFC will need to extra precautions regarding security or broadcast censorship? Uh, well, they're not exactly going to the world's most enlightened place, which is Florida. <laughs> Sorry, Florida. I mean, but y'all know I'm not playing games. I mean, I've been to Florida. I've been to Jacksonville. You know, you the first thing that comes to mind when people are like, all right, when I when I say the words Jacksonville, Florida, what's the first thing that comes to mind? No one goes. You know what? Um, enlightenment. No one says that. So okay. Uh, but I, I generally tend to think that these are revered figures for the most part. She is not some kind of uh, troll of American values while being Chinese. She just seems to be a nice person who's Chinese. I tend to, I tend to think that fight fans really respect her for the most part. Uh, I, I'm not especially worried. You know, are you going to get the wayward, stupid-ass comment? Oh, I remember when Carano fought, uh, was it Kedzie? And I was out, I was there for that show. You could, I mean, you, you would have thought someone was narrating their porn in their head as they, as they just yelled it out loud. When I was sitting there, like they're like four or five rows behind me, I was like, "Wow, you guys are really you uh, need to be lobotomized because you're a terrible human." All right, let's do one more. Oh, the last one. I have to do it. Okay, uh, I have been missing my mom lately. This person writes she passed due to drug addiction. Well, that is I'm incredibly sorry to hear that. Sure, you still miss your mom, of course. How do you commemorate her? Um, partly, I try to live the values out that I was taught, whether those are things as simple as like culinary values, right? Um, I grew up eating a lot of things that my mom made that were a function of her upbringing in uh, Beirut. So we, you know, we not anymore, but we do have a lot of hummus in the house. But we, you know, we would eat traditional uh, Lebanese fare a lot. Um, and inform my worldviews about what kinds of foods, um, and what kinds of cuisines and what their benefits are, and what the Mediterranean cuisine tends to offer from both a satiety and, and, um, 
health perspective and enjoyment perspective as well. Like all those things, like food is, you know, is a deep enriching ingredient in all of our, our cultural lives. And so that's a big part of it. Um, you know, living out the lessons that they teach you, whatever the individual ones may be, any cultural, uh, traditions that you continue as a function of them, that's them living on through you. That's how these things stay alive. Not so much the people that we love, but the traditions that they teach us or the values that they impart. The only reason that they ever live is because you make them live by virtue of how they get handed down um, from one to the next. In terms of like any rituals, do I do things? No, I don't really do things like take days off or whatever. Um, but I've gotten tattoos. I I live the, the lessons she taught and that's the best that I can do. All right. All right. Give the video a thumbs up. Subscribe. Sorry it's late. I appreciate you all watching. Until next time.